Let's pray. Father, open my mouth that I might speak words that um, bring the truth of what you have to say to us in the scriptures home, to our minds minds and our hearts, and uh, open all our minds and hearts so that we might receive this truth and trust it and live by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a sermon about how to please God. Who do you live to please? I mean, I think if we're honest, we all know that we live to please ourselves in many ways. It all comes very naturally. But something happens when we love someone. When we love someone, we are pleased when they are pleased. When we love someone, what pleases them pleases us, and it pleases us to please them. So when you love your mum, as I'm sure many of you do deeply and dearly, you want to make her proud. Whatever that takes, cleaning up your room, getting a good report, when you do something to make your mum proud, that pleases you because you love your mum and you love to please her. Uh, When you love a friend as I'm sure many of you do, love a dear friend, and you want to give them a gift, you want to give them a gift that they will love, that will please them, because that pleases you to see how pleased they are to receive your gift. Seeing your mum proud or your friend excited, that is what pleases you. Now, Christians love God. Uh, We love God because he has loved us. We love God because we've heard of his love for us. The love that sent Jesus to bring us back to God. The love that led Jesus to give his life as a sacrifice to cover our sin. The love that God has poured out into our hearts by his Holy Spirit. We've received and learned of this love of God for us and it is called from us a replying love for God. Believing that God's love for us is real and strong, Christians love God. And that changes what they do. So Paul, in addressing the Thessalonian Christians who he's writing to, that reading from uh, the New Testament is uh, the letter to the Thessalonian Christians, Paul says in one three, in chapter 1, verse 3, We remember before our God and Father your work, Prompt, produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by the Holy Spirit. That Paul saw that something was going on for the Thessalonians. There was a work that they had undertaken, a labour that they were involved in. There was an endurance. And these things came inspired by faith and love for God and the Holy Spirit. That is, there is a work, a labour that Christians give themselves the labour of living to please God. It's a labour prompted by love. That is, it's not prompted by fear, for instance, or threat. It's not prompted by even self-interest. Because we love God, we are keen to know what pleases him. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, Paul urges the Thessalonians to carry on with the things that please God. So, 
that passage begins, as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So my first question is just, if you're a Christian, is that the dynamic of your life with God? Is it something that is, at a deep level, a labour of love? Something that is a gift that you offer to God because it pleases you to please him? Now, we may need from time to time some kind of stern words to remind us that what we do does matter to God and this passage does contain a few stern words. But the Christian life is not supposed to be something that springs from the fear of a threat directed against us. It's not supposed to be something that springs from the obligation we feel because a duty has been laid upon us, but rather it springs from love, faith, hope. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 to 12, Paul mentions three specific, concrete areas of life for Christians to work on, to labour at, to live to please God in. They are, firstly, sexual behaviour, secondly, love for other Christians, and thirdly, neighbourliness. I want to take those three in that order, and I firstly want us to look at sexual behaviour in verses 3 to 8. And there are two things, really, that the passage uh, says. A negative thing, firstly, something to avoid, that is, avoid sexual immorality. And a positive thing, learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honourable. Now, sex is powerful. And sexual relationships and the way we behave sexually has a big impact on people's lives. And everybody realises that there are rights and wrongs, therefore, when it comes to sex. That you shouldn't take advantage of other people. You shouldn't use them, in some sense, for your pleasure without treating them right. And so the question is, how do we treat other people right in this matter? If you go right back to the beginning of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, it says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. And that is an early and brief but very clear and comprehensive really statement about how to treat people right when it comes to sex. That a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. That is, there is a marriage and the two become one flesh. And so from the Bible's point of view, we treat people right and we do what pleases God when we reserve sex for those who have committed to one another in marriage. Within marriage, sex is sanctified. It is made holy. It is fit for serving God's purposes. Within marriage, sex can be Honourable, It can be an activity carried on with the proper care and respect for the other person. And it's this environment of commitment, of care, of respect and of love 
that marriage should provide, and that's what guards against the power that sex has to wound us, to hurt us, to hollow us out, to make us shallow, to harden us. Now, of course, loads of people think that this kind of sex is for marriage only stuff is crazy. Right? That's too restrictive. It's too hung up. Look, people say, as long as two grown-ups enter a sexual relationship freely, as long as they give their consent and say, I'm okay with this, then that's all that matters. But I want to suggest it's not actually that simple. And even though this experiment with you know, consent only is going on a pace in our society, I think it's, it's complicated. Here is uh, something from a New York Times column uh, the column's called Modern Love, and this is just from 7th of September last year, 2018. And I w- just want to read you some parts of it, the end sections, where a, a woman reflects on her experience of kind of having hooked up with a guy on Tinder. Um, and I'll pick up the story after they've slept together for the second time. Uh, she writes, While he was waiting for his Uber to arrive, he said he would cook me dinner next time steak with sautéed mushrooms and a fig balsamic reduction. I mostly make scrambled eggs, I said. He laughed, kissed me and said, see you soon. I did not see him soon. I texted him a few times in the days that followed, playfully at first, then more pressingly. He ignored me. At first, I couldn't believe he didn't answer. And then I was devastated. My roommates didn't understand why I was so much more hurt than usual. Because he kissed the soft part of my arm, I said, and then he disappeared. They looked at me blankly. Because he asked for my consent over and over. So sex felt like a sacred act. And then he disappeared. A sacred act, one roommate said laughing. Girl, you sure don't treat it like one. So obviously her roommates knew that this girl's approach to sex was very casual, really. But she writes in the next line, But I do. She said, despite appearances, inside me, yes, I do treat sex actually like a sacred act. And so she goes on to write, when he asked so many times about my desires, when he checked to be sure he was honouring and respecting me, then sex, however short-lived, became a reciprocal offering. But the moment we pulled on our genes, that spell of reciprocal honour and respect was broken. Which is fine, my roommate said. And she was right, in a way. Asking about my feelings during sex didn't extend to caring about them after sex. Consent is not a contract of continuation. But in the days and weeks after, I was left thinking that our culture's current approach to consent is too narrow. A culture of consent should be a culture of care for the other person, of seeing and honouring another's humanity and finding ways to engage in sex while keeping our humanity intact. It should be a culture of making each other feel good, not bad. And if that's the goal, then consent doesn't work if we relegate it exclusively to the sexual realm. Our bodies are only one part of the complex constellation of who we are. To base our culture of consent on the body alone 
is to expect that caretaking involves only the physical. I wish we could view consent as something that's less about caution and more about care for the other person, the entire person, both during an encounter and after, when we're often at our most vulnerable. Because, and this is the last line of her article, because, she writes, I don't think many of us would say yes to the question, is it okay if I act like I care about you and then disappear? Now, I think there's a lot of telling observations in that. She says consent doesn't work if we relegate it exclusively to the sexual realm. This woman found that being asked for consent created the illusion that the guy she was with cared for her. But, as she also knew, when you're hooking up on Tinder, that's not what consent means. It's not really about care. But she wants consent to be about a lasting commitment of respect and care. And she says at the end, I don't think many of us would say yes to the question, is it okay if I act like I care about you now and then disappear? All that is just to say that I don't really think that contraception and consent make sex without commitment emotionally safe. And God knows this, and so he says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. In the Bible's view of consent, the consent we give is to accept one another as husband and wife. Now, if that is the heart of sexual morality, since we grow up, and experience sexual desires, we need to learn to control our own bodies in a way that's holy and honourable. Let me mention three areas where we need to learn this control. Firstly, the public area. We live public lives, at school, at work, with friends, in the street, and you need to learn to control your sexual behaviour in public. So, are you always flirting? Are you always making suggestive remarks, making sexual jokes, dressing or acting in a provocative or immodest way? Are you always trying your luck and hitting on women all the time? There is an honourable way to pursue a romance, to show interest in someone else, but there is also a dishonourable way to kind of live in a way that just is a big advertisement for your lust or a big projection of your sexual power. Christians need to learn to live honourably in public and that means that perhaps old-fashioned things like modesty or gallantry should not be forgotten amongst us. So there's the public area. We need to learn to uh, you know, control our own bodies in a way that's holy and honourable there. Secondly, the private area. Because we also live private lives, lives indoors in our households with our families or flatmates or spouses. And we need to learn, likewise, how to control our sexual behaviour in private. That is, if you're married, to live with your spouse in a way that means that your sex life is a mutually agreeable thing. That it's part of the gift of your love to bless and to please the other, to bring you together. It's not there so that you can satisfy yourself and your own desires, whatever they may be. And you must not carry on sexually immoral relationships, that is, 
promiscuous casual sex, any kind of extramarital sex, adultery, prostitution, all of these things are out. We must learn to control our bodies in a way that's holy and honourable. Thirdly and lastly, the last area is the secret area. Because not only do we live public lives and private lives, but we live secret lives. That is, there's a place that is only known to us, our thoughts, our desires, our imaginations, and things we do at the times and places where nobody sees us. And we must learn to control our sexual life there as well, because there, it's not hermetically sealed off. It's not utterly separate from the private and the public. What goes on in secret can leak in and burst out into those other places too. And so we must learn to ask ourselves, what kind of desires are we cultivating or indulging in secret? What are we watching? What are we reading? And does that come under the heading of holy and honourable as well? Now, this uh, process of learning to conduct ourselves sexually in a holy and honourable way, it's a lifelong process of learning and relearning. Don't expect to master it until maybe you're three or four or five days dead, really. But it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that's holy and honourable. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. That's the first uh, particular part of life. The second one is uh, love for Christians. Paul turns in verses 9 and 10 to talk about love for other Christians. And he writes, Now about your love for one another, we have no need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all God's family throughout Macedonia. And I just want to make one quick comment here. Not only did the Thessalonian Christians love one another, they loved all of God's people throughout Macedonia. And uh, we might talk a bit about loving one another here in this congregation, but we don't perhaps talk so much about loving Christians beyond this congregation and beyond St Matthew's and beyond even our city. But I think that the love that we express to other Christians is nonetheless important and real. It is important that we should not, as you know, St Matthew's 4pm or St Matthew's or whatever, be insular and uh, just cl- uh, not concerned, indifferent to other Christians who may just happen to go to other churches. We shouldn't be separatists. We shouldn't certainly be competitive or look down our nose at other fellowships of Christians, but we should see them as they are, as our brothers and sisters, and be concerned about them as we can. And ask ourselves, how can we love them? Now, one very concrete opportunity comes up. Uh, I'll just point it out because in your notices, in the last notice there, there is uh, mention of Lockridge Eden Hill Anglican Church, which is a church, a fellow Anglican church, uh, which St Matthew's, reaches out to and supports. We give them money to support the ministry there uh, and um, we pray for them and they have a happy news that they're having Graham Middlewick being commissioned to be their new priest in charge and on the 31st of January there's a service for that. And why are we advertising it in our bulletins? Because we want to be Christians who love the brothers and sisters who are not just here sitting in this room, but are beyond. And so one very practical way that 
we as St. Matthews will strengthen and express that love and fellowship as if some of us were there. And if you'd like to go, feel free. All right. Thirdly and lastly, neighbourliness. This is second half of verse 10 to verse 12. That uh, to please God, we should work to be respectable neighbours and fellow citizens. And so uh, Paul says, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so, that is to love your brothers and sisters more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and you will not be dependent on anybody. Now, it does seem ironic that Paul the Apostle should recommend the quiet life because he hardly lived one. Of all people, if you know anything about the Apostle Paul, he would roll into town and trouble would start. You know, he'd go to the synagogue, he'd start talking about Jesus, and a few weeks later there'd be a riot and he'd be run out of town. Maybe he'd be arrested and thrown into jail. Uh, He seems to be, you know, slightly on the edge of hypocrisy, recommending the quiet life. What does he mean? Well, I think what he means is, look, be a good neighbour. Give people every reason to respect the way you live. Because actually, I'm not out to cause trouble. Paul wasn't courting trouble. He didn't delight in it. And every opportunity he took, he took to, to kind of do as much as he could to commend himself, uh, to pull his weight and to take care of his own business without minding anybody else's. And in fact, there may have been an um, element in the Thessalonian church that kind of needed to hear this and to change, that wasn't ready to be a good neighbour, that wasn't ready to work hard, that wasn't ready to uh, be, provide for their own needs. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul has already mentioned his own example. He says, when we were among you, me and my fellow missionaries, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone. We didn't swan into town as religious teachers and say, we're the holy men, give your money so that we can do our work among you. No, he plied his trade night and day so he could pay for his own food and do his missionary work. And he says, remember this example that I set you. In chapter 5, verse 14, a little further on, he's going to say, we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. There may have been those amongst the Thessalonians who were idle, felt they didn't need to uh, provide for themselves and were disruptive, felt it's okay for me to get involved in other people's business. Being a Christian does not mean that you can ignore the demands of everyday, ordinary life. There is a need for work, for provision, for pulling your weight as much as you can. You don't want to be some zealot who wants to tear it all down out there, to cause trouble, to overthrow, to bring about the revolution. You don't want to be some zealot who just wants to ignore all that and say, that's beneath me, I don't need to worry about work, you should support me, I'm the holy guy. No. We are to mind our own business, work with our hands, win the respect of outsiders. We're to be good neighbours. Now, can I say this? We all depend on others. Despite this talk of independence and not being dependent at the end of that passage, the fact is we're all interdependent. And we're all 
depend to some degree on others. And some of us are stronger and able to provide more easily and to provide for more people. And others are weaker. And for whatever reason, perhaps through circumstances that are no fault of ours, we require more support and more help. Now, let the strong be strong, but let them be strong not for themselves, actually, but for everyone. And let the weak not be ashamed to be helped. Right? There's nothing shameful in being weak and requiring help. Uh, the weak should not feel themselves kind of entitled to demand help. The weak should, by all means, do everything they can to carry their own load. But there is no shame in needing to accept help. Let everyone seek to bear their own burdens as best they can. And let everyone look to help others bear their burdens as best they can. So, in sum, the way you live can please God. And that, if you love God, that's a great kind of encouragement, isn't it? That the way you live can please the Lord you love. And what pleases God is that we live so as to honour one another. Uh, That is, to honour one another in our sexual lives... That in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. That uh, we honour one another in our relations with our fellow Christians. That we love one another as God has taught us to. And that we love our communities, our societies, by uh, our daily life being conducted in a way that wins respect and doesn't make us dependent on others. So having heard all this, let me ask you a series of questions. Firstly, what must you change? Okay, what have you heard tonight that's kind of made you mindful of something in your own life that you think, actually, that has to go, that has to change. I can't leave that alone and keep going. Let me ask you again, what could you change? Because Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, you're doing these things, but I want you to do them more and more, better and better. So again, is there something that you think, I could change this and I could do better? And then lastly, well, what will you change? So there may be a moment right now where you need to write down something that you think, actually, it strikes me right now that I need to change this or I could change this. And so here's my decision. I will. I will do something to live differently because of what I've heard right here and now. And if you've got that far, that you've got something that you think, yes, I will address that, then the last question is, who or what will help you change? Right, Because it's all very well for me right at the end to say change, but change is hard. And so I could preach you know, five or six sermons, I guess, trying to explore how to change. Let me just ask, if you are making a decision that I want to change, that I will change, you need to ask, who or what will help me change? Because, trust me, we all need help to change. Let's pray. Uh, Father, what it is that you have laid on us, um, as we've heard this, whatever... strikes us in our lives that could change or must change, uh, that we could live more and more to please you in the realms of our sexual lives, in our relationships with other Christians, in our daily life, in our society. 
whatever it is that we must do or do differently or do better, help us, Lord, to do it. Help us to know it. Help us to remember it. Help us to be troubled by it. Help us to see what the better life looks like and help us to live that better life that pleases you more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.